morning. Believe it or not, we are coming to the end of the story of Jonah. And this morning we're going to be in Jonah 4. And we saw in the first three chapters of Jonah that God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Assyria is one of Israel's greatest enemies. They're also one of the most violent, most cruel, most ruthless empires of the ancient world. And God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach against it. And Jonah wants nothing to do with it. And so Jonah disobeys God, he runs from God, but then he ultimately obeys God. And he goes and he preaches against Nineveh. And he calls them to turn from their wickedness. And they listen to his message. And they believe God. And God relents and he he decides not to destroy them because he sees how they've turned from their evil ways and how they have turned to him, how they put their trust in him. Now you would think that Jonah 3 would end with something like it's saying, and Jonah rejoiced greatly at seeing how the Ninevites turned from their wickedness and believed God. But that's not what it says. In fact, Jonah 4 starts like this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now, if I preached a message and thousands of people, an entire population of people turned from their evil ways and believed God, I'd be pretty excited. I, I, this would be a preacher's dream. This would make any preacher's day to, that God would use me to move in the hearts of people. That's amazing. But that's not how Jonah felt. To Jonah... It seemed very wrong. In fact, the original language is even stronger than that. To Jonah, it seemed exceedingly evil, and he was angry. Now, we've maybe not been in the same situation as Jonah, but I think we can all relate to feeling angry at God. Maybe for something we feel like he should have done for us. Maybe for something we feel like he allowed to happen to us. Maybe we're angry for something we feel like he should have given us. I think we can all relate to those kinds of feelings, can't we? I'm not the only one, right? Okay. I, I know I can. I've shared with you before that prior to going to seminary, prior to becoming a pastor, I spent many years in corporate finance. And when I was in college, when I was an undergrad, I knew that I was gonna go to graduate school. I thought I was either gonna go to business school or I was gonna go to law school. And I decided to go to business school because I figured that's the fastest way to make the most amount of money. That's really how I decided. Business school was two years, law school was three years, either way I was gonna come out with a ton of student loans. I better make sure that whatever decision I make would be a worthwhile investment, that I'd come out with a really successful, lucrative job. So I decided to go to business school at New York University. And when you go to business school, the minute you go to business school, especially if you go to a school like NYU, which is in the heart of New York City, the minute you get there, your entire focus is on how you're gonna get that lucrative job after graduation. Every minute of every day of those two years, that's what you spend your time obsessing over. And one of the significant markers of your time in business school is to get a really good internship. Because if you could get a good internship after your first year, the odds were you'd get a really good job offer after graduation. And so I got a pretty decent internship. Uh, And 
I, I wanted to work in uh, equity sales and trading, and so I ended up going to work uh, as an internship for an, a prestigious investment bank on Wall Street. Uh, on their equity sales desk. This was an amazing opportunity for me because this is what I thought I was going to do with my life. Little did I know. <laughs> and so I worked there all summer and I worked really hard. And by the end of the summer, they made me that lucrative job offer. And I was overjoyed. I was so excited. I was on cloud nine. Cha-ching, the money train had come in and I was on it. <laughs> life was good, I was set. And then, 9-11 happened. And the days and months that followed 9-11 were really difficult for New Yorkers and for many in our country. Not only did we have to deal with the emotional trauma of such a tragedy, but many people lost their jobs. The economy took a nosedive and people were laid off, they were out of work. And because of the events of 9-11, the, there was a downturn in the economy. And so that investment bank, bank that had made me that really lucrative offer placed a hiring fees, freeze on, on all their jobs. And so that incredible offer was taken away as quickly as it came. And I was devastated. I could not understand how God had allowed this to happen. I had a ton of student loans to pay off. In fact, my student loans, and this is like 20 years ago, my student loans back then were more than the mortgage on my house that I just bought last year. That's how much money I owed. And if you've ever been under the weight of that kind of debt, you know the kind of pressure and anxiety that that can cause. And I just didn't understand how God could allow that to happen. I began interviewing for other jobs, but I could not land a job. The job market was just dried up. The months were quickly passing, graduation was approaching, and I had no prospects for a job. And I began to just be filled with anxiety. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. I had no idea what I was going to do. What would people think? What would my family think? What would my parents think? I was supposed to make it big, and I couldn't even get a job. And I just didn't understand what God was doing. All I needed was for God to give me what I wanted. All I needed was for God to give me the job that I wanted. Then I could be happy. Then life could be good. I felt like I had kept my end of the deal and God wasn't very good at keeping his end of the deal. He was supposed to make me happy. He was supposed to give me what I want. He was supposed to make life easy for me. Why would God do this to me? I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I wonder if you've ever felt angry at God for not giving you what you've wanted. I wonder if you've ever felt forgotten or abandoned by God for not giving you what you wanted. Maybe you want a new job or a different career and God just hasn't opened up those doors for you. Or maybe you want a better marriage and no matter what you do, it's still hard and you're still struggling. Or maybe you just want to be married and that prayer just keeps going unanswered. And it looks like everyone around you is finding love. Why doesn't God do that for you? Maybe you just wanna lose the weight. That if you just lose a few pounds, then life could be good. Or perhaps for you, you desperately want to be a mother. And yet time after time, you're faced with the despair and disappointment of negative pregnancy results. Why would God do that to you? 
And I think quite often, when things like that happen, when we don't get what we want, it can almost feel like it's not worth going on. Life's not worth living. I wonder if you've ever been angry at God. And if you felt like that, if you've experienced those kind of feelings, I think it would be wise to consider whether you've created an idol in your heart. And that's what we're gonna look at this morning. This morning we're gonna take a look at the end of Jonah's story and here's what I wanna show you. God's love not only reveals our idolatry, God's love heals our idolatry. God's love not only reveals our idolatry, God's love heals our idolatry. And so this morning we'll walk through Jonah 4 together and I wanna share with you two observations and then I'll just leave us with some questions to reflect upon our own hearts and our own lives with. Okay? Jonah 4, let me read it for us. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me because it won't be on the screen. Jonah 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to, sh to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Here's observation one. God's love reveals our idolatry. Jonah is angry. He thinks what God has done is exceedingly evil. And he says, I knew it, God. I, I knew you would do this. I know who you are. You are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger and abounding in love. And he is angry because God has shown grace and love to the Ninevites. They are Israel's enemy. And so he would rather see them destroyed out of his inordinate love for his country. And when Jonah doesn't get what he wants, he felt like his life wasn't worth living. And he says, it's better for me to die than to live. And how does God respond? He doesn't say, that's it, Jonah, I've had enough of you. You spent three days in the belly of a fish and you still don't get it, I'm done with you. That's what I would say. Who has time for this? God does. That's not what he does. That's not what he says. He asks Jonah a question. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? 
Out of love, God simply asked Jonah a question to get him to examine his heart, to get him to take a look at what was really going on in his heart. Jonah's love for his country had become an idol for him. And as soon as Jonah had to choose between love for God and love for his country, his love for his country won out. His love for his country was his true God. Jonah's identity as an Israelite was more significant to him than his identity as a follower of Yahweh, the one true God. And when his love for God and his love for country conflicted, Jonah chose love for his country. And in that moment, it was clear that he had an idol. Tim Keller defines idolatry in this way. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything that that is so necessary to your life that if you don't have it, you feel like life's not worth living. And and that's exactly how Jonah felt. He he didn't want to go on. An idol is anything you spend your, your time, your energy, your emotional and financial resources trying to secure. An idol can be anything, and most times, they're actually really good things. Often we take these really good gifts that God has given us, our careers, our social and political causes, our our relationships with our spouses, our, our friends, our children, and we make them ultimate. And when you do that, you've created an idol. Instead of worshiping the giver of the gifts, we begin to worship the gifts themselves. We've created an idol moment, we take that relationship or that thing, and then over time we begin to close our hand over it. And we value that person or that thing more than we value God. We think that by having this relationship or by having this thing will finally be important, will finally be secure and significant. And so we think that whatever this is, whoever this is, is more important, more necessary, more valuable, more beautiful to us than God himself. And in that moment, we've given whoever this is or whatever this is an unbelievable amount of authority over us. It's not wrong to desire a relationship or a career or even to look a certain way. It's just wrong to want those things with the closed hand. It's wrong to think that person or, or, or that thing will give us value and significance because they won't. They can't. They will never satisfy us because they were never meant to bear the weight of all that we're putting on them. They were never meant to be our security and our worth. At the root of every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. And underlying every act of idolatry is a lack of belief in the gospel. We think that someone or something is better than Jesus. You and I were created to worship. The question is, what are we really worshiping? What what do we live for? Because whatever we live for controls us. Whatever we live for owns us. So how do you know if you have an idol in your heart? Let me provide you with four questions that Tim Keller uh, gives us to, to, to ask ourselves in order to diagnose whether you have an idol. Here's the first one. What do you spend your time thinking about? What do you daydream, daydream about? What do you think about when you're laying awake at night or when you're sitting in traffic? You think about a relationship or, uh, or do you think about your image or how you're gonna move further in your career? And look, I'm not saying if you think about those things once in a while that, that you have an idol. But what is it that you consistently and habitually spend your time thinking about so that you might find comfort and happiness in your heart? 
Whatever that is, that's a really good indication that you might have an idol. What do you spend your time thinking about? Here's number two. What do you spend your money on? Where you spend your money will show what you really love. Maybe it's clothes or, or your home or, or your kids. How you spend your money often reveals your idols. What do you spend your money on? Here's the third question. How do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated dreams? So it's natural to get sad and, and to feel down, to be disappointed when your prayers go unanswered or, or your dreams are frustrated. But then, are you able to go on? Is life over for you because you didn't get what you wanted? If you respond like Jonah and you think it's better for me to die than to live, I'm so angry that I wish I were dead. If that's the way you feel, then that's a good indication that you might have an idol. How do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated dreams? Here's the fourth question. What is underlying your strongest, most painful emotions? Maybe your most strongest emotion is fear. What are you so afraid of losing because you think it's so necessary to make life worth living? Or, or maybe you're like Jonah, maybe your strongest emotion is anger. What is so necessary to you, so important to you, that the thought of not having it makes you angry? What's underlying those most painful emotions often points to our idols. God asked Jonah a question, it's the same question that he asks us. If I don't give you what you want, is it right for you to be angry? God's love reveals our idolatry. Here's the second observation, God's love heals our idolatry. Thomas Chalmers, a well-known Scottish preacher, said this, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to rid our hearts of the empty love of idols is to replace it with a more powerful love, with a more satisfying love. The only thing that heals us of our idolatry is experiencing God's love. It's receiving the Father's love and then living out of the reality and truth of that love. And Jonah begins to understand this back in chapter two, where he says this, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Jonah begins to understand that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We are saved by grace. Every one of us is undeserving, yet out of his great love for us, God offers to us his son so that he might bring us back into relationship with him. And Jonah begins to understand this, but he's not fully there. And you and I aren't that different than Jonah. I've been a follower of Jesus for over 20 years, and my heart's greatest desire is to be formed in the way of Jesus. And yet, there are so many times when I need to receive the Father's love for me and to allow his love, his grace, to be the foundation of my identity because I can so easily make idols out of almost anything. Anything. And so I must constantly examine my heart. At the core of who I am is the truth that I am the beloved daughter of the God of the universe and that truth ought to change the way I live and yet so many times it doesn't. But really understanding that, experiencing that and living out of that identity is a process. It's a lifelong process. 
That's what the scriptures call sanctification. God not only asks Jonah questions to get him to examine his heart, he goes one step further in order to heal him of his idolatry. Jonah goes outside of the city, he builds himself a shelter and he sits down to see what's gonna happen. Jonah is in a hot and dry, arid climate. And so the Lord provides a plant that grows overnight to give him shade and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah is very happy about the plant. But then God provides a worm which destroys the plant and and when the sun rose, God provides a scorching wind and the sun just beats down on Jonah's head so that he's about to faint. He's probably suffering from heat stroke. Often, God takes away our comforts so that we might see what we're truly relying on. God put that plant in Jonah's life and then he takes it away because he wants to show Jonah what's really going on in his heart. God says, Jonah, Jonah, your heart is not set on me. I'm not your true God. Why are you angry, Jonah? Is it because I stopped giving you what you want? Sometimes the only way God can get our attention is to take away our comfort. Out of his love, he removes from us that which which we think is most necessary, most important, most valuable, most beautiful to us. Whatever that thing or that relationship is that we think we must have to feel important and secure and significant. Friends, God will not let us go. He will keep after us. Whatever it is that you add to God as a requirement for your happiness will suffocate you. And until God breaks you of that thing, until God breaks you of that relationship, until God breaks you of that good desire that has now become an excessive, disordered desire, until God breaks you of that, you will be miserable. Because your idols were never meant to satisfy you. They were never meant to give you the security and the significance that your heart longs for. You must ground your happiness, your satisfaction, your identity in the steadfast love of your father. God wants to heal Jonah of his idolatry, but he doesn't just give him a talking to. He sends a storm. He puts him in the belly of a fish. He takes away this plant that has given him comfort. God often uses storms in our lives for our good. And out of his love, like a good surgeon, God begins to cut away to remove the idols of our heart. But God is gentle with Jonah. God gives Jonah what Jonah refuses to give to the Ninevites. God's patient and loving. He's forgiving and accepting of Jonah. God should have been angry with him. He should have rejected him, turned away from him, said he's done with him. But that's not what he does. That's not how God works. Instead, he says, Jonah, Jonah, look at yourself. You've been concerned with this plant. That word concerned in the original language would be better translated to be moved with compassion, to be grieved. And God says, you're grieved about this plant? I'm grieved over these people. I'm moved with compassion over these people. You're upset because I destroyed your plant? Yet you want me to destroy 120,000 people, Jonah. Look at yourself. I know who the Ninevites are. I I, I love them in spite of their violence. I know who you are, Jonah. And I love you in spite of your arrogance and your self-righteousness. I don't want you or them to stay that way. I want you to repent of your sin and to turn to me, to find your satisfaction in me. 
And God says, Jonah, you don't understand my love. You don't understand my grace. I didn't give you what you deserved. And I won't give the Ninevites what they deserve either. You're right about me, Jonah. I am gracious and compassionate. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love. I am all those things for you and for them. Out of his love, God wants to heal the idolatry of Jonah's heart and to show him that his mercy, his grace in his life is just as undeserved as his mercy and grace in the lives of the Ninevites. God's love reveals our idolatry. What was really going on in my heart when I lost that job offer was idolatry. I had placed my identity, my worth in the prestige of having a successful, lucrative career. But that was just really the surface idol of my heart. The the deeper idol of my heart was the love and approval of others. And in the deepest places of my heart, I believed that I needed a successful career so that I could be loved and approved by others. And only if I had the love and approval of others, then and only then would my life be meaningful. God's love doesn't just reveal our idolatry, God's love heals our idolatry. Out of his love, God removed my comfort so that that I might see that my value, my worth, is not based on what others think of me, but it's based on what he thinks of me. It's based on his love and acceptance of me. And when I learn to receive the Father's love, which, by the way, is this constant thing that I have to do, that we each have to do, but when I learn to receive the Father's love, that's what got me on the path to, to real joy, and real peace in God. There's this meme that I've seen on social media, maybe you've seen it too. Now I think the idea that this is trying to get across to us is that sometimes we cling to things and and we don't understand that quite often God has something better in store for us. That idea is true, but there are some things that are wrong, theologically wrong with this picture. And I don't have time to go into all of them, but here's the point that I wanna make. The treasure isn't the big teddy bear. The idea isn't give up your idols and God will give you something better. A a bigger bank account, a a nicer home, a better marriage. That's not the idea. Uh, uh, That's not actually true. The the real treasure is Jesus. Jesus is better. He's better than all these other things. He's the real lover of our souls. He's our joy. He's our hope. He's our reward. He is better than the big teddy bear. And until we understand that, until we see that, until we see him for all that he is, for his beauty, for his wonder, for his majesty, for his love and compassion and his grace, until we're captivated by all that he is, we will spend our lives chasing after things that will never satisfy us. And that will always leave us empty, hopeless, and disappointed. Jesus is better. He's better than the big teddy bear. He is. And yet we chase after the big teddy bear. And the question for us this morning is really just this. Is there something or someone in your life that you believe is more important, more valuable, more necessary to you than God himself? Because at the root of every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. And underlying every act of idolatry is a lack of belief in the gospel. We think that something or someone is better than Jesus. 
Is there something or someone that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God? Is there something or someone that you seek to give you what only God can give you? If there's anything that you add to God as a requirement for your happiness, that thing, that person will suffocate you, will strangle you. And until God breaks you of that thing, until God breaks you of that relationship, you will be miserable because your idols will never satisfy you. They, are, they were never meant to be your security and your worth. And the invitation of Jesus is to remove the idols of our hearts by experiencing the love of our Father. The invitation of Jesus, the only way to be healed of our idolatry is to receive the Father's love for us, is a radical grasp of God's love for you. And to allow that love to seep even into the darkest, deepest crevices of your heart. God's love not only reveals our idolatry, God's love heals our idolatry. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love for us, so the love that will not let us go, a love that first pursued us, that still pursues us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to examine our hearts, that if there's anything in our lives that we think is more important, more valuable, more necessary to us than you, God, would you show us those things? Would you help us to lay down our idols? Because you are better. You are the real lover of our souls. So, Father, help us to experience your love in ways perhaps we've never experienced before. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.